0: The Gospel of John. And so if you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 20, or a Bible app, or you can certainly listen along, but you can Google that if you like, John chapter 20. Kids, this week and next, this week and next, we are going to see the, a couple of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. So after his resurrection, in fact, the one that Alan's going to read to you in a moment takes place the Sunday after Easter, which is, which is today, right, kids? So we can relate to this. Something very important for you and me happened that first Sunday after Easter. So Alan's going to read for us our passage in John chapter 20. Please follow along.
1: Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were in sight again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. And see my hands, and put, your, and put out your hand, and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe, Thomas answered him. My Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have not seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Alan. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts and minds this morning. And thank you, Amelia, as well. (laughs) It was the spring of 1970. Tim Keller was a student at Bucknell University It was a contentious time. President Nixon had recently escalated the U.S. involvement in the war in Vietnam, and students at Bucknell gathered for a few days of protest and discussion. Keller and a small band of fellow Christians sat near the edge of the crowd, holding up a sign inviting people to a different kind of discussion. The sign read, Quote, the resurrection of Jesus is intellectually credible and existentially satisfying. <laughs> very Keller-esque, even at that time, I think. The resurrection of Jesus is intellectually credible and existentially satisfying. This passage holds up to you and me the very same sign. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is intellectually Credible. It is rationally, historically credible, one that requires a response from you and me, one that demands, in fact, wholehearted trust. And his resurrection is existentially satisfying. just means it, it meets you in real life, in the ways you most need, in real life. Do you know that? Have you experienced that? That's the sign being held up to you and me, but it's more than an invitation to discussion. It's a divine summons. It's a call to take a journey together, you might say. A journey. A journey from faith, I'm sorry, from doubt, from doubt to faith, and with faith, experience life. That's what I want to see with you this morning, this, this journey from doubt to faith. And with faith in Christ, experience real life. So first, first part of our journey, let's call it the dilemma of doubt. The dilemma of doubt. Here in chapter 20, Jesus has risen from the grave. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, and then to all of his disciples, as we saw last week, all of them except one, a guy named Thomas. We're not told where Thomas was, but he wasn't there when Jesus appeared. So, verse 25, pick it up. So the other disciples told him, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas says most emphatically, I must personally encounter the risen Christ for myself. In fact, he is adamant here. In the original language, there is a double negative, which is allowable in this language, in In the original Greek, it is literally, I will not, not believe. You might say, I will never, ever believe unless I put my finger right in those nail marks and my hand where the Roman soldier pierced his side. And so Thomas has gone down in history as doubting Thomas. And that's probably not entirely fair, is it? It's not like the other disciples were full of faith before Easter. They weren't. They were huddling in fear. But there is a problem here, a problem with Thomas's response to the other disciples after that first Easter morning. Did you notice how verse 25 began? It says, so the other disciples told him, told Thomas, we have seen The Lord, these trustworthy eyewitnesses told him, not one, not two, but the other ten remaining disciples, we saw him. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary saw him, but he refused to believe their word. That's a bit of a theme in John's gospel, believing his word. In John chapter 4, we are told the Samaritans of the Samaritans, many believed because of his word. In John 5, Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes has eternal life. In the upper room discourse in chapter 16, the Holy Spirit has promised to lead these same disciples into the truth. But Thomas says, I will never, ever, ever believe your word unless I put my fingers in those nail marks. Thomas's dilemma is one that you and I face. Will we believe the apostolic eyewitness testimony of the risen Christ? Is that intellectually credible to us? They did give their lives for this message. All except the Apostle John were executed for saying, Jesus is alive. So will you bank your eternal soul on their testimony. And if not, why not? For many years, until age 23, I was what I would call, looking back, an apathetic atheist. I didn't believe God existed, but if he did, I really didn't care. I didn't want him telling me how to run my life. I didn't want him messing up how I wanted to live. Mine was a an immorally motivated unbelief or skepticism. I wonder if you can relate to that today. And if you can, be honest with yourself. Your your doubt, your skepticism, your unbelief requires a a heart change, first of all. No amount of evidence is going to convince you otherwise. But I want to take this opportunity briefly to address the reality of doubt because Christians, Christians can have sincere doubts at times about their faith. You might be growing up in a church going home and find you wrestle with doubt. This is all you've known, which is a great blessing, but you need to make this faith in Christ your own. So you might be wrestling with some doubt or Or others sometimes wrestle with doubt when going through real suffering, which is understandable. God certainly uses suffering to refine our faith. But oh, that is most difficult, isn't it? Is that you this morning? I think we should pause here and realize doubt is not necessarily wrong. And can be helpful if we respond to it appropriately. Os Guinness, I think, is helpful here. He writes the following doubt. He says, doubt is a halfway house between unbelief and faith. Doubt is a halfway house. It has got to be resolved. But you don't have to feel bad about doubt. You just need to resolve it. I think that's good advice. You don't have to feel bad about that wrestling with doubt, but you do need to resolve it. Don't settle there. So how? How might you resolve these doubts? Let me give you a few thoughts briefly. First, by doing what Thomas did not do, and that's receiving the apostolic eyewitness testimony. Consider maybe even reading or rereading The gospel accounts of the life of Christ. I know there was a time in my life where I was was struggling deeply with my faith and wrestling with doubt, and every day I parked myself in the gospel accounts Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to see Jesus every day. That's all I could do to see Jesus every day. Go to the apostolic testimony. Second, go to God in prayer. Ask him to meet you and help you for more faith. Ask him to meet you right where you are. And third, I would say, stay closely connected to the community of faith in the local church. Sometimes people who are struggling with doubt withdraw from the church, thinking, I'd I'd just rather be alone right now. But that is really the opposite of what we should do. Alexander McLaren, a 19th century British pastor, urges the following. He says, quote, The worst thing, the worst thing that a man can do when disbelief or doubt or coldness shrouds his sky and blots out the stars, the worst thing is to go away alone and shut himself up with his own disturbing thoughts. He says the best thing, the best thing that he can do is go amongst his fellow, uh, his fellows, sorry. The best thing he can do is go amongst his fellows. His fellow believers, if the sermon does not do him any good, the prayers and the praises and the sense of brotherhood will help him. I hope this sermon does some good. But the prayers and the praises and the sense of brotherhood most certainly will as well. So brothers and sisters, friends, don't stay there. Seek to resolve your doubts. Bring God's word, God's spirit through prayer, and God's people to bear, because God desires to meet you right where we are, right where you are, as we see next. Let's call the second section the confession of faith. Secondly, the confession of faith. It's now eight days later after that first Easter, eight days by their reckoning, one week by ours. So it's the Sunday after Easter, like today. The doors are locked and Jesus stands in their midst again, proclaiming, peace be with you. As we said last week, that's a loaded statement coming from someone who just rose from the dead. Peace or shalom to the Hebrews. Perfect well-being, because I am rolling back death and every other consequence of sin, Jesus is in effect saying. And then in verse 27, verse 27, he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Did you notice the exact terms that Thomas demanded earlier? Jesus read his mail. and meets him right where he is so compassionately. I'm not saying that we get to set the conditions for believing or that God must meet our demands. I mean, don't miss the kind, loving rebuke here. Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. But Jesus is meeting him right where he is, producing the climax of the account. Verse 28, as Thomas answers, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. It appears, in fact, that Thomas didn't even bother putting his finger into the nail marks. Perhaps he did; we're not told. But it appears like the impression you get is he just saw the risen Christ and he said, Oops, that's enough. My Lord and my God. There are, there are a number of confessions of faith about Jesus Christ in John's gospel. John the Baptist in chapter 1 said, Jesus is the son of God. Nathaniel in chapter 1 said, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. The Samaritan said, he's the savior of the world. Martha said, I believe you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God, chapter 11. But Thomas's confession is the pinnacle. This Confession in John's Gospel bookends where John began the Gospel. Do you remember? Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh. The Word is Jesus. So in the beginning, in the eternal beginning, in the beginning without a beginning, <laughs> there he was with God and, yes, was God, always has been, always will be. John is showing how vital this truth is of Jesus' full deity. This separates Christianity from every other faith in the world. This is the Essential truth, one of the essential truths, without which you are not a Christian. I wonder if you believe that statement. Since 2014, a State of Theology poll has been conducted, and they did it last year as well. The latest version found some results that were rather disturbing, to be honest with you of almost 600 self-identified evangelical Christians, 65% said that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 65% created being. 30% said Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 42% said God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Now, that's frightening. Either that's a whole lot of Christians who are woefully untaught and need to recite the Nicene Creed just like we did, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Either that's a load of Christians woefully untaught or a lot of people who think they're Christians but really aren't. Friends, there is no salvation in Christ if you deny the full deity of Christ. You see, only God can save us from the judgment of God. Only God can save us from the judgment of God. And only one who is human can stand in our place and receive that judgment for humans. So only one who is fully human and fully divine can rescue us, and that's exactly who Jesus is. But it's not enough. It's not enough just to acknowledge that intellectually. Did you notice here the, the personal pronouns? Thomas says, My Lord and My God. It's been said, I think rightly, that Christianity exists in personal pronouns. Because saving faith in Christ is not just about making theologically accurate statements. Checking off the right truth boxes. That truth must be acknowledged and personally applied. Personally surrendering to Jesus as my Lord, my master. And personally trusting in him as God come in the flesh to take away my sins. And Jesus, did you notice, he receives this expression of worship. Look at verse 29. Verse 29, Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? This is not Jesus saying, whoa, Thomas, you're getting carried away now. This is real earnest worship that Jesus receives. You got it right, Thomas. And then notice how we come into view the rest of verse 29. Blessed, Jesus says. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. should be very encouraging for you this morning. Blessed, or you might say here, accepted by God. Blessed are those who have yet to see Jesus physically, yet through the lens of apostolic testimony, they behold Jesus with the eyes of faith and make the same confession. This is how someone comes to faith in Christ. And this really is how we follow Christ, isn't it? Saying, "My Lord and my God." I mean, the means by which you begin the Christian life, it's the same means by which you are to live it, with faith in the gospel, the good news. We live the Christian life making the same confession. Let me ask you. Are you weighed down by sin this morning? Maybe feeling overcome by a sense of shame. Aware of how, how you fell short this week, as we all did. Maybe you blew it with the kids, had a big conflict with your spouse. Or just your heart was filled with rage at your parents or a roommate or a friend. you fill in the blank? There is good news for you here, saying, my Lord and my God. Take, take the advice of 19th century Anglican J.C. Ryle, who said, let us daily repose or daily rest. Let us daily rest our sinful selves on Christ." With undoubting confidence, as one that is perfect God as well as perfect man. Listen, he is man, Ryle says, and therefore can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, our weaknesses. He is God, and therefore is able to save to the uttermost them that come to God by him. Catch that daily. Friend, rest your soul in this profession of faith. He is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ because only God come in the flesh can save. And realize one more thing here. The God-man saves by his suffering. By his suffering. This is not the main idea, but it's a connection I think to make especially if you're here in that category of wrestling with doubt because you're going through a real trial. Jesus is holding out glorified wounds to Thomas. Nail marks from being crucified. A wound in his side from a Roman spear. And catch this, the ascended Lord Jesus Christ is wearing those glorified wounds right now. We sang about that in the very first song. The God-man saves through his suffering. In 2015, the New York Times highlighted the top questions, Googled about God. Top questions Googled about God. Number one, who created God? That's a good one. I'm not sure how Google answered that. Number two, why does God allow suffering? And number three, why does God hate me? Just realize the pain behind that question. Third most question Googled about God. Why does God hate me? That's that's not philosophically, why does God allow suffering? It's why am I suffering personally? Are you here asking that? There is often much we do not know about our personal experience of suffering. But this much we do know. Our God understands suffering because he experienced it personally in the flesh. There's a poem by Edward Shilito published after the brutal carnage of World War I. It's entitled, Jesus of the Scars. Jesus of the Scars. The last stanza goes like this. The other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you did stumble to your throne. Listen. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds but you alone. You catch that? To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And only our God has wounds. If you are suffering, and either you are or, friends, you will be, this is not meant to be a glib answer. But he does understand. He is Jesus of the scars. So, so make this confession of faith to come to Christ. Make this confession of faith to daily rest in Christ. And make this confession as you follow Christ on the road of suffering, my Lord and my God. That's our journey so far from doubt to faith and even worship But it doesn't stop there, does it? Thomas becomes an illustration, a model, for the very purpose of the entire book. Thirdly, the gift of life. The gift of life, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In the first half of the book, it's called the book of signs, because John gave us seven of them. From Jesus turning water into wine in chapter 2 to raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And then the second half of the book, the greatest sign, his death and resurrection. Yet John says, many other signs Jesus did. I didn't write them down. But these are recorded for a specific purpose. Verse 31, these are written so that, here's the purpose, so that you may believe. So that you may respond with faith, saving faith, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So Thomas is a model. Thomas is an illustration for how we are to respond as well, aren't we? Through the apostolic testimony to believe he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Notice why. That by believing, by believing you may have life Life in his name. Eternal life in the age to come, yet life experienced now in this life as well. Eternal life as a present possession, as Jesus said in John 5, whoever hears my word and believes has right now, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed already from death to life. Christian, you already possess supernatural eternal life as a present possession. Isn't that good news? We might even say it's existentially satisfying. What you most need in this life you already have. I don't know, I don't know what you perceive about his profession of faith. I'm not wishing to argue one way or another. But Kanye West, rapper Kanye West described this life in Christ when he was on Carpool Karaoke with James Corden. Often important theological statements made on Carpool Karaoke. James Corden was on Kanye's plane with Kanye's choir. And he asked Kanye West, what do you say to people who say, I don't believe the reawakening that Kanye says he's having. I don't believe that this can be as night and day as it is, that one day you'd be living your life one way and now saying everything's for all of this. And Kanye answered in his Kanye way, When you go to sleep, would you agree that you are asleep? James Corden says, yeah. And when you awake, would you agree that you are then awake? (laughs) That those are two different states? He says, yeah. He said, people who don't believe are the walking dead. They are asleep. And this, he said, this is the awakening. It's not a bad way to capture the existentially satisfying life in Christ we have as a present possession. Left to ourselves, the walking dead. In Christ, spiritual life, eternal life, now and forever. That's what he holds out to you and me in this journey from doubt to faith to find life in the risen Christ. From doubt to faith, to find life in the resurrected Jesus Christ. It is intellectually credible. It's true and demands to be believed. It is, you might say, existentially satisfying. It meets you in real life with genuine life in Christ. So if you're not a Christian here, I want to exhort you to come to faith in Christ to surrender to him, and hope only in him, saying, my Lord and my God, who personally died for my sins, that you may have life, true life, true spiritual life, now and forever. I urge you to come to him even now. And if you're already a Christian, I want to exhort you as well to keep on this journey, you might say, of faith and worship following Christ by making the very same confession Thomas did. My Lord and my God, that you may continue to enjoy this transformative life in Christ now and forever. Be like, be like Christian in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Christian learns that he and his city are doomed to destruction, a man named Evangelist, tells him to flee, flee from the wrath to come. So Christian begins running. People thought he was crazy, as people think Christians are today. Family members tried to stop him. And maybe that's your experience as well. Others mocked him and yelled threats against him. But Christian put his fingers in his ears and ran on, crying out, life, life, eternal life. Isn't that a great picture? of how you run this race. You keep banking on the apostolic word. You put your fingers in your ears to drown out dissenting voices if you have to. You keep confessing your own personal faith. My Lord and my God. And you keep journeying. You keep journeying from doubt, hopefully to ever-increasing faith and worship as you enjoy life in the risen Christ. Let's pray and respond to God's word together, shall we? And Scott and Grace can come on back, and those who are going to serve us the Lord's Supper, prepare to do so, please. I want to give you an opportunity, though, to respond.